cavemen and women. For the first 15 years of my involvement with our, with tours in, to the Grand Canyon, I had only taken the bus tour twice. I have been on the raft twice, but have led backpacking groups 10 times. Interesting, on both of the years I was on the bus, it snowed at the South Rim, causing great consternation to everyone. Snow, cold temperatures, and wind make it very difficult to hold outdoor lectures on the rim at the start of the trip, and backpackers and rafters find these conditions very uncomfortable and potentially dangerous. As a professional meteorologist, it has become my duty to forecast the weather in the canyon for a week of our tour each year. Under most circumstances, it's not really possible to accurately forecast the weather more than a few three days ahead, but occasionally when the warm weather pattern dominates the western United States, it is possible to predict with some degree of certainty that the weather will, what the weather will be like, that the weather will be likely hot or dry for an entire week of our tour, the tour. However, because we purposely schedule tours in the spring each year, and intense storms can purge down the west coast from Alaska unexpectedly. One can never be certain that a brief snowstorm won't occur in the middle of the week. It is not only my job to notify everyone a few days before the trip that the weather will likely be, but to update all participants at our orientation briefing in Phoenix and at the RIM lectures on Sunday afternoon at the start of the tour. I have found that making these forecasts for many years that no one really acts on my forecast ahead of time but when I forecast bad when I forecast bad weather, which actually occurs, I get blamed for it. For it, more attention is paid to my forecast the day before the backpackers and rafters descend into the canyon. However, at the orientation, I typically strip to a pair of shorts and a t-shirt to get my weather briefing. If the weather appears to be hotter than normal for the week, if it appears to be colder than normal, I put on a heavy coat, hat, and gloves. These theatrics are intended to get the attention of the backpackers and rafters. They have the option to take all their extra clothes, tent, stove with them. If the weather looks bad, on the other hand, they can leave some of the equipment behind in storage if the weather looks good. Of course, these decisions are based on how confident I am in my forecast and how confident the participants are in me. In all the years of making these forecasts, on only two occasions have I recommended that the backpackers leave as much equipment behind as they could. On two other trips, I recommended that they take all their equipment with them because of the likelihood of snow. In all four cases, the forecast proved to be correct, both for the hot, dry forecast and the cold, wet forecast. In all other cases, I have equivocated and suggested just carry extra clothing on, to be on the safe side since I couldn't be certain about the weather for the week. In most of these cases, the weather was better than expected. In the two cases when it snowed, I was traveling on the bus. This happened. This happenstance has led to the expectation that if I decide to ride the bus, it will snow at the Grand Canyon during the tour. To ensure good weather, I have been encouraged not to take the bus, but rather participate in the raft trip. Of course, none of these attempts to avoid snow in the Grand Canyon really work. The best remedy is just to blame the weatherman. <laughs> Even though I had accurately forecast the weather conditions the year it snowed on the backpackers and rained on the rafters, I was apparently discussed nightly at the evening devotionals. During the victory banquet at the end of the tour, when each of each group is requested to contribute a skit, 
I was serenaded with songs and poems describing the manner in which the weatherman should be slowly roasted over the open fire or hung in effigy. <coughs> During the year of the blizzard of 1990 in the canyon, Don Barber was the backpack leader of the Cottonwood Creek Group. Don had considerable experience as wrangler and backpacker from his days as director of several Christian camps. However, he had never experienced leading a group of 16 backpackers into such a snowstorm. On Sunday evening, when we reached our rooms at Maswick Lodge at Grand Canyon Village, it had begun to snow lightly. When we awoke in the morning, six inches of snow was on the ground at the south rim, and more was falling. Past experience told me that as the group descended into the canyon, the snow would turn into rain at lower and warmer elevations, and the storm would slowly weaken during the week. But this didn't reduce the impact of watching 16 backpackers disappear into the gloom as they departed the bus carrying their packs toward the trailhead. Would they be okay? Was it sensible to allow them to proceed? When Don and his group reached the edge of the canyon where the trail descended into the void, the visibility was obscured by clouds and snow. The magnificent view of the canyon normally seen from this vantage point was limited to about 10 feet of white surface ahead snowflakes falling from above. No one had traversed the trail since the snow began, so it appeared a pristine layer of cotton covering the rocks and shrubs. Only a slight depression and more spacing between the trees hinted at where the trail was located. Don is an experienced backpacker, so following the trail was not a major problem, but the footing of his group was a big concern. In places, the trail was quite steep, and carrying backpacks could have caused some to easily slip and fall. At the top of the Coconino sandstone, where the cliff is vertical, the trail twists and turns precipitously downward. On this day, the view of 400 feet or more vertical drop to the rocks below did not frighten the party of backpackers because of the poor visibility. However, the white fuzzy unknown beyond the edge caused considerable uneasiness. The group worked its way slowly down the incline, walking in Don's footprints as he broke the trail. Fortunately, the fresh snow had fallen on dry ground and no ice was present below the snow to make the descent even more treacherous. Some of the party were becoming concerned during the downward trek that the snow might stop and they would be camping in a blizzard. Might not stop and they'd be camping in a blizzard. It crossed some minds that they might even have to endure a week of sub-zero conditions and need to be rescued. Don assured them that as they descended, the temperature would warm. Above freezing, the snow would turn to rain. Wonderful. Sitting up camp in cold rain is always so much fun. It wasn't until they reached the Supai group at about 2,000 feet below the rim that they ran out of snow and the trail was no longer covered with white. The trail conditions had slowly changed from more than 6 inches of snow to no snow, then red mud. Although the precipitation had turned to cold rain, and, if anything, had become heavier. The visibility was a little better, and they were still in the clouds. As they moved further away from the south rim and more toward Horseshoe Mesa, which extended along a ridge into the main canyon, the wind began to increase. The rain began to soak into the group's clothing, and the wind had to a bite to it. Don was becoming concerned that some of the group might experience hypothermia in the conditions. Setting up camp in the rain would not only be unpleasant, but also difficult, particularly for cooking dinner. He decided to stop for lunch in a protected area between some rocks and discussed 
with the group what their options might be for the night. Some of the group were thrilled with the challenge of this camping experience, but a few were somewhat frightened and uncertain about what the night would bring. Don told the group that their campsite was on the top of Horseshoe Mesa, which is very exposed to the elements. The wind typically blows across Horseshoe Mesa strongly, and in this weather would become very uncomfortable. Because of the weather, he was considering finding an alternate campsite which was more protected. Unfortunately, this would place the camp further from the toilet, and he thought the group would probably appreciate more respite from the wind and weather. One possibility was to camp in an old abandoned stone building with no roof near the junction, where the Grandview Trail spits onto the Hans Creek and Cottonwood Trails. Another was to camp among the few trees which exist on Horseshoe Mesa. A third was to crawl into one of those mines or caves in the area. The group agreed that a cave or mine would be preferable. Don said that the Park Service only allows camping in designated areas in the park, but because of the weather conditions, he felt they might understand. After a quick snack, the group shouldered their packs and began the last mile and a half into the camp. Not long after they started down the trail, a lonely figure appeared in the gloom ahead. As the figure took shape, they could see the uniform of the park ranger with his Smokey the Bear hat and heavy rain gear. The ranger halted the group with a puzzled face. Where in the world did y'all come from? Did you come? You all come from, he asked. Don replied, we came down from the rim, heading for Cottonwood Creek. Boy, you sure picked a great day to hike the canyon, he said. Where do you plan to spend the night? Well, we have a camping permit for Horseshoe Mason tonight, but we were thinking of spending the night in the old mine or one of the caves. Do you think we could get out of the weather? Do you think we could get in out of the weather? After a moment, the ranger replied, We never let anyone camp in those mines or caves because of the historical nature of the sites and the deterioration it will cause by staying there. However, because the weather is so miserable and dangerous today, I'll give you permission to camp on the cave in the cave of the domes this one time. It's the west side of the Horseshoe Mesa, just under the rim. But you'll have to promise to pick up all your trash and leave it in good condition. I think you'll be safer in the cave than out on the mesa. Besides, if you get into trouble with rain and cold tonight, it'll be me who has to come out and rescue you. Thanks, Don said. We appreciate your understanding. I know where the cave is, and we'll leave it better than we found it. By the, t by the time... What are you... By the way, what are you doing out here? That's my job. When the weather gets bad is when you'll find us rangers out and about. Few people get into trouble when the weather's good, so we get to hike the canyon when it snows or rains or when the temperature's over 100 degrees. Nice job, huh? And here I thought you guys spent most of your time on the front porch with your feet on the rail looking over the edge of the canyon, Don said. Nope, I wish it were that easy. Well, take care. Going down the trail, and I'll check on you tomorrow morning. By the way, watch the trail going into the cave. It's probably a bit muddy, probably pretty muddy along the cliff right now, and it's a long drop over the edge. We will, Don said. Thanks for your help. Okay, everybody, we've got about an hour to get to the cave. Let's head on down to the trail and watch your step. I don't want anybody getting hurt now after we've already gotten past the worst part. The group slowly moved off behind Don. The wind seemed to be getting stronger and the temperature was dropping again. Don noticed that the hikers seemed to be huddling closer together now. He was pleased with their performance. Only one person had done 
much complaining, and even he was of good nature about most of it. The three women in the group had worked like troopers. All of them had been well prepared with rain gear and had carefully worked their way down through the snow and mud without any serious mishaps. It looked like all the written instructions before the trip and the final verbal instructions had paid off. However, Don was thinking, if Vardy Man asked me to lead another group into the snowstorm, he's crazy. Next time the weatherman gets to lead the group when the weather turns bad. About 45 minutes after Don led the group past the old abandoned stone building and out onto the mesa, he took the west loop toward the cave of the domes. He noticed that the wind was gusting about 40 knots or more, and he was glad for the promise of camping in the cave for the night. One concern he had was that he wouldn't be able to recognize the final turnoff to the cave. If there had been snow as far down in elevation as Horseshoe Mesa, he wasn't sure he wouldn't. He was sure he wouldn't be able to find it. But even if the rain and fog is going to be difficult, Don saw what appeared to be a correct branch in the trail. He headed downhill to the west, looking familiar, and looked familiar. But there was a lot of similar gullies on the top of Horseshoe Mesa. He hesitated for a moment, and the next member of the traffic bumped into him. Before he caused the traffic jam, he decided to try it. It took about 50 feet down the path, and he was confident he was on the right trail. About 200 yards, he came to the edge of the mesa, and the trail dipped over the rocky outcrop and ran along the cliff. Don stopped and waited for the entire group to catch up. When the last straggler arrived, he briefed everyone how slippery the ledge could be and to be extremely careful climbing down. The group inched along the drop-off and listened as the wind hustled, whistled against the rocks and shrubs near the edge. Suddenly, a swirl of wind caught the group and nearly swept two off over the ledge. Don yelled through the gale to hold on to each other and help the two back on the trail. One of the women was barely clutching a small tree with one hand and digging one toe into a rock crevice when her husband scooped her up and dragged her back onto the trail. She was still trying to catch her breath with another gust when another gust of wind threatened to tear the entire group from the ledge. Don yelled back at the group, when the wind dies again, move quickly ahead and get into the cave entrance. It'll be less windy just ahead. Don moved deliberately across the narrow rock ledge and stood to one side, helping each member of the group over the final obstacle into the cave. As the group gathered in the dark just inside the cave entrance, they could hear the wind outside tearing at the mouth of the cave, trying one last time to suck them to their death. Nobody said anything for a moment. After a few seconds, Fred, unbidden, began to pray out loud, Lord, thank you for saving us from the wind. Thanks for guiding our steps through the snow. Thank you for sending us the park ranger. Thank you for giving Don the knowledge to guide us to this cave and the safety it provides. Father, we are grateful for your love and care to us. We love you. Amen. The whole group echoed. Amen. Don pulled a flashlight out of his packing and counted the group. One, two, three, fifteen, sixteen. Don said out loud, all here, safe and sound. Okay, let me tell you a little about this cave and we'll set up for the night. This is a dry cave. It means it doesn't have any running, any water running through it anymore. Thank God, Gloria said. I've had enough water for one day. Well, you won't get any wetter in here, Don said, but you could get very muddy. The floor and walls of the cave are very dusty. With the water you've got on you from the rain, if you touch anything, you'll really get muddy. 
I suggest you do not place anything on the floor for a while until you dry off. If you can't wait that long and you must take your pack off, try to find a dry cloth and put it down on the floor before you sit or lay on anything. Oh, by the way, there are areas in the cave which have considerable amounts of bat guano. Check out where you sit. Men, you can have the room over there, and women, you can set up camp here. If you need to use the restroom, you'll have to brave the elements outside. I would wait a little while for the wind to die down. However, it's about 5 p.m. We'll have devotions at 6.30. It took about two hours for the group to get their sleeping areas established in the dark and to cook supper. The temperature in the cave was about 65 degrees. This would be a very cool respite to the normal outdoor temperatures in the high 80s this time of year. But today it was comfortably warm compared to the outdoor temperature of 40 degrees. Most of the members of the group have changed clothes to avoid the wet cuffs, collars, sleeves soaked by rain, pelting the exposed parts of their bodies. The cave looked like a laundry when a casual flashlight beam was pointed around the rooms. Drying clothes hung from everywhere available nook and outcrop of both rooms. When it appeared that everyone had finished supper and was relaxing, Don called the group into the larger of two chambers near the entrance of the cave. He placed a bright lantern which distributed light in all directions from the middle of the room. It is forbidden to build campfires in Grand Canyon National Park, and that would be doubly true inside this cave. Even if we, I wanted, uh, if one wanted to build the fire in the canyon, it would be difficult to find enough firewood to burn, even if it were a dry day. The few trees that grow on the canyon don't produce much dead wood because they remain so small. A lantern didn't produce much warmth, but it did brighten the room and make it cheery. As the group assembled, the wind could still be heard gusting near the entrance. It was still raining, and the sound of falling water tinkled through the cave. Fortunately, near the mouth of the entrance sloped away, so no water actually flowed into the cave. Don called on Roy, a member of the group who had demonstrated some musical talent earlier in the day, to lead in singing. Using song sheets Don had brought with him, Roy led the group in This is the Day. His name is Wonderful and Majesty, songs frequently used in the canton. One of the most enjoyable experiences of the backpacking trip is gathering together after dinner and singing. Normally the group camps in a side canyon near a stream so that songs echo off the walls, competing with the frogs croaking nearby. However, in the cave, the sound was amplified much greater than normal, and it almost sounded like a Mormon tabernacle choir practicing. Thanks to the cave's acoustics, even quieter members of the group could hear, be heard contributing to the rich, full harmony. After the rigors of the day, these songs of praise to the Lord had an effect on each camper's heart. With little prompting, several members of the group expressed their appreciation to the Lord for his protection during the day, and offered testimonies to his goodness. Don gave a short devotion on the children of Israel camping in the wilderness and then led in a period of prayer. For the technical presentation, Don decided to talk about cavemen. He used the caves of the domes, cave of the domes and the snowstorm as an illustration of what conditions may have been like during the Ice Age. As Don made various points in his presentation, the shadows from his arms waved on the walls behind him. Some of the information he shared pointed out when the, that when the flood of Genesis came to the, 
to an end, and Noah and his family has disembarked the ark. Some of the residual effects of the flood continued for many years. During the events of flood, magma, which flowed flowed to the surface of the volcanoes and from the ocean floor along the submarine ridges, released great amounts of heat, which probably left the world left the oceans of the world somewhat warmer than they are today. These warm oceans evaporated large quantities of moisture, which continued to fall as rain in the tropical regions and snow in the polar regions for several hundred years after the flood. Noah's descendants multiplied rapidly on the earth and moved from the mountains of Ararat to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. When they refused to migrate over the earth as God has commanded them, when they decided to build a tower to worship the stars and flaunt their pride, God had, a forcible disper- had to forcibly disperse them over the earth by confounding their language. Many of the peoples moved to the Nile River Valley in Egypt and into China on their way to the Americas. Some traveled into northern Europe and others Africa. During these migrations, the snow was building up on the continents in the polar regions. Water was being removed from the oceans by evaporation. The ocean levels were reduced by 400 to 600 feet, according to some estimates. This allowed the land bridges to form between continents, which are widely separated today. Between Asia and North America, one major land bridge formed across the Bering Strait. Many migrations of people occurred during, across this land bridge, taking people of Asian descent into the Americas. Even today, a noticeable similarity of facial features between some Chinese Eskimo and Native American cultures is evident. In polar regions where immigrants settled near ice and snow, caves can be found where people live to avoid the elements. During the Ice Age, which followed the flood, building materials were hard to acquire in polar regions. It was relatively easy for small groups of people to live in caves and stay out of the rain, snow, and cold. In addition, protection from wild animals was generally easier in a cave. Many cave cultures occurred in more northerly latitudes, which were a storm, which were stormy at a large amount of the time, which were stormy a large amount of the time. The food was limited to meat from animal kills. Fresh fruits and vegetables were uncommon, and bones from many of these cultures exhibited rickets. The disease is due to the lack of vitamin D. The bones tended to become bent and thick. It's likely that these people also experienced a lot of arthritis. Finds of cavemen were originally interpreted as examples of early stages of evolution of man. Many of the images shown in museums show a thick-browed, stooped family of Neanderthals. Those pictured appeared stupid and are characterized as having a low IQ. Today, however, a caveman, however, cavemen are not as often viewed as exemplary, exemplifying these traits. Some of the environmental effects are beginning to be recognized. Cavemen are now seen as people who lived in caves by some analyst. Artifacts have been found which show the Neanderthals buried their dead, cared for their elderly and infirm, employed agriculture, music, 
weapons, and possessed items of religious significance. They were fully human people, groups, living in harsh conditions. Don Barber's backpacking group to the Grand Canyon in the snowstorm of 1990 had an opportunity to experience firsthand what it was like to live as a caveman. Not only did they have to have to trudge through the snow and cold, they were forced to live at least one night in a cave. After this experience, I'm sure the group of backpackers had a much greater appreciation for the conditions through which some of our ancestors survived.